Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 77 through 84, which begin with Tanya telling Bond that she loves him and end with Bond about to inspect Grant's briefcase after Tanya and Grant have left for the dining car. In between, the Orient Express hurdles across maps of Europe to Belgrade, where Red Grant watches Bond inform one of Kareem's sons of his father's death and at the next stop in Zagreb, Grant takes the place of Bond's contact, exchanging passcodes with Bond and boarding the train with him, after which they discuss escape plans. And our guest today is Jason Aaron, one of the hardest working men in comics, whose writing includes runs of Thor, The Incredible Hulk, Doctor Strange, Ghost Rider, Wolverine, and The Punisher, as well as forays into the worlds of Star Wars and Conan the Barbarian. He also creates wholly original works, including the Vietnam saga The Other Side, the Native American crime series Scalped, and the terrifying, violent, and darkly funny Southern Bastards. Uh, I'm particularly excited about the fact that he and uh, Mahmoud Azrar are returning soon to the Hyborian Age with King Conan in December of 2021. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me. This is cool to do. So I got, I got to gush a little bit about, about a moment in your last Conan run. In Chapter 7, which is this amazing chapter where Conan has all these beautiful women with him, it's like it's like James Bond with all the girls from Honor Majesty's Secret Service on a mission together. Right, sure. And at one point, Conan gets tied up and thrown overboard into a, a crocodile-infested body of water. And as, uh, as as you do, as tends to happen <laughs> pretty, when you're Conan. And one of the girls throws the sword overboard surreptitiously. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, there's no way Conan's going to get that sword. There's just no way. And then, of course, he does. And there is this single-page panel this action panel that is just mind blowing because in the instant of that, of that freeze, you understand exactly what has happened leading up to it. And you have portents of exactly what's going to happen as soon as the action resumes. And it's so dynamic and, and just stunning. And I guess I have one technical question, which is how does that work with the writer artist relationship on something as specific as that, as a single page action panel? Um, I'd, I'd have to, I should look up, I could grab that issue to see specifically what page you're talking about. I can't pull it up in my mind, but I mean, just in general, I mean, it helps to work with somebody who is as, as incredibly talented as Mahmoud, like he's so good. Um, and my job is always just to not to tell a guy like him how to draw this image, right? Like he doesn't need, I can't draw worth a crap. Like I'm terrible at drawing. I, I suck at Pictionary. Like that's my level of <laughs> bad drawing. So I'm, it's just my job to give that, give him what he needs, you know, to do his job. Right. And then just get out of the way. So I'm always just trying to, you know, and different artists I work with are, are, are different. They kind of need different things. Some might want you to tell them every little thing you're going to see on that page. Some might just want the emotions and the guy's face and 
and um so i don't know that that's that's my job and again the my mood killed it on that conan run where it was a is a challenge because every issue was like a completely different um uh setting different different time in conan's life i was trying to do you know sort of a a big tribute to Robert E. Howard, who, you know, that's the way he wrote those stories, right? Every time you pick one up, it's like Conan's a thief. Conan's, you know, the king of Aquilonia. Like he jumped around all through Conan's life. And so we did that over the course of, of 12 issues, which was a lot for a mood to draw, but he, he really killed it. Yeah, he, he's amazing. I was, I, I, I really just fell in love with his stuff the instant I saw the very first panel that he drew really something yeah now he and i are doing king conan which i think starts in december december is what i heard yeah so 12 how many issues it's six six yeah okay. well i can't wait i was actually was listening to, to an audiobook of robert e howard people of the black circle uh, i think it's called and uh and i hadn't read it since like high school and it was just really it's just so, you know, I mean, it's just so, so absolutely out front and exciting and rich. And he was, he was amazing. I don't know. I mean, he was, he had to be insane. Like this, this, <laughs> this, this ability for him to just be so completely committed to these worlds. I mean, you can't fake that. Well, you know, he was, he was very Texan. So that's probably part of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love that Howard stuff. I discovered it at kind of the perfect age. I was probably about 13, you know, my little local used bookstore in Jasper, Alabama. I found this old ragged dog-eared copy of one of those um, Robert E. Howard collections and just fell in love with it and bought all of them. And they're all, you know, they're still sitting on a shelf a few feet away from where I sit and write Conan stories. So that that, that gig in particular has been a, a real dream come come true for me that I've, I've always wanted to write some Conan stories and so I'm super excited I get to keep doing more. I would be remiss to mention the fact that we have had now two Sons of Alabama in a row. John Cork was here last week, so I don't know what's going on here. I don't know who we need to get next, but we got we got two in a row from Alabama. Huh? Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. Maybe Goober from Gomer Pyle <laughs> from Andy Griffith's show should be next. Butterbean. So, uh, Butterbean's like the the second most famous guy from Jasper, Alabama, my oh. hometown. And, a guy and, from my hometown fought Butterbean. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, <laughs> Wait, I, I assume I bet my town's smaller than Jasper. Alabama. <laughs> what, what's your town and who, what, who won was, this fight? Uh, Hamilton, Missouri is the town I'm from. It was a guy named Cowboy Bill Eaton is his name what he went by as a boxer yeah. and they fought twice and i have no idea i can't remember at all who won i want to say butterbean won number one and and bill wanted a rematch i don't i don't remember though for sure but well yeah i wonder did he win that one like are we still waiting on the I, on the third one to complete well, I'll tell the trilogy you, bill's, <laughs> bill's got to be in his 50s now so i, I don't uh, think he's coming back but uh yeah we'll we'll have to look that up sorry fight fans out there sorry we don't have the, uh, the uh, on that one did you do you remember your first uh uh encounter with either james bond or for from russia with love either one i you know i don't remember exactly my first encounter with bond um i mean it might have been you know like the certainly in terms of seeing them in the theaters it would have been the first timothy dalton movie i remember going to see those in the theater i don't i wasn't a huge bond fan growing up but 
um, again, I lived in a small town, went to a small high school. There was one other guy at school who was a nerd, who was a comic nerd. So we, we became friends pretty quickly. I liked to write. He liked to draw. So yeah. it was like yeah. a match made in heaven. He was a big Marvel guy. I was a bigger DC kid. We're still really good friends today. My friend John, he, John was a huge Bond guy. So I grew up hearing more about kind of the old you know, Sean Connery movies from him, I think, probably before I ever saw him. So I don't remember exactly when I first saw From Russia With Love, but I, I've always remembered it as one of my favorites of, of the Bond movies I had seen. And I guess, I mean, I think I've seen all of them. Maybe there might be some Roger Moore ones I have not seen. Which might not be a bad thing. <laughs> I had a big, of, I think I grew up with a big aversion to camp, campiness just because the as a comic fan back in those days, you were kind of always struggling for like respectability from the mainstream media. And, and I think so many of us resented the Batman TV show because that was what comics were synonymous with for probably up until now, until the rise of the Marvel films, you know, still any, any mainstream news article would always start with the headline of like Biff pal, you know, comics does blah, blah, blah. So I think I, even though I loved that Batman show when I was a little kid, I came to hate it. And I think I lumped all those Roger Moore movies in, in, in with that. Yeah. It's I like don't know why, find... cause I also loved Burt Reynolds movies, you know, and I loved, like I could love Cannonball Run, but hate, hate those Bond movies, which were basically like Cannonball Run. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't Roger Moore in Cannonball Run? Or was that Cannonball <laughs> Run too? I don't know. This is all the same movie, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get a case of beer and make a movie with some cars. Yeah, no, it's a, it was the same with Doc, Doc Savage. They finally made a Doc Savage movie, and then it was this terrible, campy thing. And I just remember being so heartbroken as a kid when I saw it. I was just, I was, I was incensed. Actually, I wasn't heartbroken. I was furious. Like, how dare they? Finally, they're going to make Doc Savage, and this is what they do. And that, yeah, and that's the only Doc Savage movie you've ever gotten, right? Like you're yeah. still waiting. You're still waiting on the Citizen Kane of Doc Savage movies. Shane, there's supposed to be a Shane Black Doc Savage with right. The Rock. That was supposed which, to have happened years ago. Was there really? Oh wow! Yeah. Which they, which I now they now it's supposed to be TV series. So I don't think uh, The Rock's going to do a a series run though. So I, don't I just remember a picture from Sh of The Rock and Shane Black in Shane Black's living room. And they're like, we're going to oh, wow. first story meeting or something. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm so not a huge would, rock fan, but he would be a decent Doc Savage, maybe. Yeah. It would have been a Doc Savage movie set at Christmas with a with a wise, a yeah, wise, wise ass kid as Doc Savage's <laughs> sidekick. Exactly. Got to Shane Black it. He, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. uh, take any half steps. Shane Black. Right. He always Doc has Savage those. in a Santa suit at the beginning. <laughs> well, that sounds, okay see, that sounds that. great. <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> I would, I would watch the hell out of that. <laughs> uh, so did you, so did you, were you able, did you go back and rewatch from Russia with love this time? Or did you just jump into the minutes? I'm just kind of curious. No, I rewatched it. I, had, I hadn't seen it in so long. I couldn't, uh, I mean, I could remember liking it. I could remember it's got Robert Shaw in it, who I love. That was about all I remembered. So yeah, I went back and rewatched the whole thing. Well, let's uh, jump into these minutes. Uh, we're, we're on the tail end of this fight that Bond and, Tanya have had where he's smacked her and she's she's saying that she loves him and he dismisses her just so coldly and I I wonder in this moment like are we supposed to think that this relationship will ever come back to 
to anything. Well, I mean, he's Bond, right? Like it, this feels, this feels like to me, in some way, a quintessentially Sean Connery Bond scene where he slaps the woman and she turns right around and professes her love for him, and he basically doesn't give a damn, right? Like, is there, do is there a list of like how many times Connery's Bond slaps a woman in a movie? It's got to, there's got, this can't be the only one, right? Surely there are other scenes. Well, I mean, he uses one as a as a human shield, and right at the beginning of Goldfinger, right? I mean, there's different ways he he's creative. He doesn't just slap. He, he does other <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other times he slapped someone. I'm not sure. Mitch would know better than me. Probably he fights with pussy galore. Um, I don't think he slaps Fiona Volpe. He just dances with her after she gets. He just spins her around so she gets shot in the back. Yeah. Um, yeah, going through the list, I don't, I don't, I don't think he does. Maybe just, I mean, maybe just this sort of scene seems so synonymous with my idea of kind of his that version of the character that I just assumed that it would be in every one, one yeah. of his movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. I mean, I, I, I almost, I, I feel like I almost expect you know, kind of Bond from that era to have a scene where he's an asshole, right? Um, where Bond should be an asshole, and that and and him, you know, the way he treats her in that scene, I think is a is a prime example. Yeah, yeah. He kind of put so he kind of pushes her. It seems like he gives her a little push right in the back, mm-hmm. and then it feels like one of those shots where maybe they didn't frame it quite right. Like they framed it just a little too low because she sort of falls out of frame, and then it starts to feel like very actorly <laughs> there at the bottom of the frame where it's like, do they want her to fall to the floor or something like, or he really is just needed to be, they frame it up just a couple of inches and he just kind of pushes her out of frame and then walks out. It, it's not as smooth as it could have been. Yeah. It looks and they didn't go back goofy. for another take. Clearly he just no. crosses over and opens that door and then, yeah. And then we're on to the montage. I don't know. Probably cause he's Connery and he like actually slapped her would be my, and he was certainly a defender of that. one take was enough. Right. <laughs> so this montage that we go to, which of course it's hard not to think about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you know, at least there's not a line going through it saying where they're going, but it's following the rail line, which, which does the same thing. Peter Hunt, apparently the editor said he hated montages and he put this off until the very last minute because he just didn't want to do it. And when he finally sat down to do it, he said he did it very quickly. He used library shots. If you watch, you'll see a green train, and then you'll see a train with a red dot on the on the, on the the wheels. And he just grabbed everything that he could and threw it together very quickly and said, there it is, I'm not going to go back to it. But I don't know, with John Barry's music, it has a kind of energy to it that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little long. Do we need that long of a train montage in that? Like, how much ground are they? I don't know my, I don't, you know, I don't know my Eastern European geography. I don't know how much ground they're actually covering during that little montage. It yeah, kind it, of feels like they could have cut the first one. So he walks out of the room. We dissolve to the train arriving at the station. He gets out, has the conversation, gets back on, and then we get one because. There, at least there's discussion about destination. Like, okay, I'm going to need help getting from here to here. Okay, we'll help the audience a little bit out. We'll move time forward a little, and we'll help the audience out a little bit with geography here. But two of them does feel a little bit much. It's it's like, wait, we stopped stopped the map so you can get out of the train. Now get back on the map. You know, it's a little, it's a little bizarre. 
Right. I mean, if this was, you know, like you said, one of the Indiana Jones kind of montages they would do, like he he would have crossed half the planet in the time it took to do. <laughs> That's true. One of those where I yeah. feel like they're just kind of going, you know, from one country to another, like probably not that far, right? Yeah. It's like us, far. like us crossing Kansas into Missouri, you know, for a three minute train montage. Montage one is Kansas City to Wichita. Number two right. is Wichita to Dodge City. Which I, I actually did just take a train ride just a couple weeks ago. First time I've been on a train, I think, since I was a kid. Other than like the train from, you know, Newark into the city. I don't count that, but um, which is its own its own little adventure. But I I took the train from Kansas City to Herman, Missouri. I uh, went to Herman, Missouri for the first time, which was lovely. Had a lovely time. Drank a lot of Missouri wine. Yeah, so um, that's what you do there, right? It's drink wine. That's yeah, pretty much all you do. I, I mean, I kind of, it was sort of amazing. Like, I had no idea um, that literally, like, you step off the train and like you're in town. I mean, it's like the Wild West, right? There, there was literally a, a lady standing there, like, "Do you know where you're going?" I was oh like, wow! Yeah. How nice. Um, but the the train traveled not quite as luxurious as it used to be <laughs> back in the day. No. It was my main takeaway, and it did. It took it took a extra about two hours to get from Kansas city to Herman because uh, at one point there's just like another train in front of us that was broke down. So we're waiting on a crane to come move the train out of the way. All all those freight lines have priority too. So if you run into a freight line, a freight train coming down, you have to stop and wait for it. it, And that can make that trip to Chicago. That's the one that's most common among people. I know that can make it, from eight hours to 12 hours real fast. And that's, sure. I mean, but you're on a train, so you can kind of chill to spring reading material or whatever. Yeah. Just I give mean, yourself the time. Yeah. Ideally you can chill. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I would have been, I would have been happy to have like, you know, done a little train montage and just sort of yada, right. yada, yada myself to Herman. <laughs> to Herman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say the, the score here. Well, the score for this movie is fantastic. This is really like the first point where I really noticed it, noticed it like, like, man, this is really good. This is really exciting. And it's taking the somewhat mundane business of a montage to a, to a different level. Without this music, this, we would really be talking about whether we needed montages, I think. Uh, but here it's like, man, I don't know. I kind of like them just because the music playing over them is so, it's kind of thrilling for what we're seeing, you know? Yeah, I like I like the music in, in all these kind of next couple scenes we're going to talk about. Music and the sounds, the train sounds, station sounds. It, it's it's a fun little bit just to listen to, I think. Yeah, apparently the same way as I guess with the Wild Bunch, you know, they went out and recorded all these gunshots that had never been recorded before to try to make all the gunshot sounds sound differently. Well, with From Russia With Love, apparently there were 300 plus different train sounds that they were using as they built this audio track to try to keep it every space being fresh every space feeling like you're in a different place and that was not typical of the times but i guess peter hunt said there'd been so many train movies that that was one of the things that they wanted to do was try to find all sorts of ways to keep it dynamic yeah that's wild to think back to the era when there were so many train movies and so many westerns that you really need to push to diversify the soundscapes how often do we get either one of those these days? Yeah, really. It's so true. Yeah, I was watching um, for a few dollars more last night, and 
the gunshots in that movie are just amazing. They're like they're like lasers. They 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 pew more than bang. It's pretty pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, Leone, you like the higher pitch, right? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, and, and Morricone too. In the school, when when he used the sound effects and the scores, they were usually like ping instead of boom. But yeah, you definitely with the Wild Bunch with Peck and Paw, you get the more big booms. I, and I I love all those movies. If you guys ever do a, a, a you know minutes of Leone podcast, let me know. I'd love to come on. Okay. Or Peck and Paw too. Bring, if you do Peck and Paw, bring me on for Convoy. I want to talk about Convoy. Oh boy, that that might be that might be too good to resist. Oh my or, gosh. or like Alfredo a convoy. Garcia. Well, but but so but would you would you say that Alfredo Garcia and Convoy are on a, a equal plane, <laughs> or can we say that one is one is an amazing kind of mental masterpiece, crazy masterpiece, and the other one is um, maybe a little less? Look, you're gonna have to bring me on the podcast to get the answer to that question. <laughs> All right, that that's not, it. That's, that's it. Maybe not as simple an answer as you would think. <laughs> All right, we're we're going. It's, it's going to happen, Jason. You you be careful what you wish for, because that would be. I would love to talk about Peck and Paw. Um, I noticed as we get to this train station that this whole up uh, all of this train stuff they get so much mileage out of this single dolly track that just goes down the length of the train. I mean, they track back with people, they follow people, they glide alongside people, and it's it's uh they get they get a lot of a lot of good out of it. Yeah. Yeah, are, you, are we talking about the the shot like when Bond gets out of the trains going to meet the Karen Bay son bit with with yeah. Shaw like stalking him? Yeah. Yeah, I love that bit. <clears throat> I mean, it's hard with that score and that that shot it's hard not to think of I mean, of course, you know, you equate Robert Shaw with sharks at this point. Right. But he's yeah. like, I mean, he's the shark in that scene, just sort of coolly stalking Bond, like he has the whole movie. Right. He's just sort mm-hmm. of popping up in the shadows, killing people here and there um, before he really makes his big appearance and, you know, getting massages and punched in the gut with brass <laughs> knuckles. Yeah, the end frame, you can actually see his reflection in the glass, which I had never noticed before in other versions of it. Because I always kind of thought, well, that's weird. I've seen him, and now you don't see him anymore. But this, I was watching the Blu-ray of it, and oh, yeah, his face is right there reflected in the glass. He's just he's just out of out of actual shot. He's visible through each window, and then when it's time to stop, so he stops at the open window. So you get this idea. I was tracking the windows, closed, closed, and then open. So you get the idea that Red Grant's savvy enough to know Okay, here's where I need to not be visible, but I need to be able to hear. Now, why he knows this, I don't know. Why Bond decides to stop here to make this all-important uh, exchange <laughs> that becomes the key to so much, which cost a man his life. Uh, we could talk about more about how this uh, the cigarette lighter exchange is probably too important. <laughs> like, I don't, it oh, certainly I- seems to unlock a lot of opportunities for uh, trouble. I got a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> but he does well, seem so grant's pretty savvy with the stalker uh technique you know he knows to stop right there but this is this seven minutes i think i talked about it a little bit last week but i, I get i get disappointed in bond as a spy at times in these old movies because <laughs> where we are now we're more in a like a sherlock holmesian kind of era with spies where it became this thing where, oh, well, they noticed things. They really noticed things, uh, detective spies, so on, whoever it is in our storytelling. 
and noticing small details and the satisfaction of them uh, revealing that they noticed it and what they deduced from it has become this thing. And they weren't interested in that at all with Bond, right? Like, at what point does this early Bond do this? I don't know. But I feel like he knows Red Grant's there, senses it, right? Because he does that little sort of take where Grant is stopped and he kind of looks over the wrong shoulder is what Bond does. He kind of looks over his right and then he looks over his left. But the, if he turned all the way around, he would have seen the reflection of Red Grant, right? Um, but he doesn't. And then later in these minutes, he's face to face with this guy that we know from last week's minutes. He clocked him in the in the hallway of the corridor of the train. And it's, he's got that blonde hair that sticks out. Like he had to have noticed that blonde head of hair the day before. However, I don't remember how far before in the timeline it is, but man, it, when he meets this guy face to face later, come on bond. Like you have to go, is that the guy I saw yesterday in the hallway that I sized up? I don't know. Am I, am I pushing it too far or. No, I, I, the, I didn't think about it in that instance in particular in that way, but I think the scene definitely, yes, it represents how bad of a spy he is. Cause I, I was thinking about it from once he's talking to Karen Bay's son and telling him, you know, that the kids right away, like, you know, who, who killed my dad. And he's like, don't worry about it. It's definitely this other guy that yeah. he killed. Like he has, seems to have no doubts whatsoever about the, the way Karen Bay died, even though he found him with a knife in his back you know, with this other guy who they had left, you know, tied up in its his suit coat. But no doubt, like slam dunk, definitely, yeah, they definitely killed each other. No other possibility. Like, seems to have no doubts about that. Um, yes, why literally they, the murderers three feet away from him, watching him listening so, yeah, to not, an open window. <laughs> it's not the best scene for his his yeah detective skills or savviness as a spy. I would agree. You know, what's so interesting is in the book, that exchange only happens once. And Bond is standing out, looking out the window of the train, and this guy sidles up next to him, and they do the thing. The I use a lighter, better still, until they go wrong. And Bond turns and looks at this guy who identifies himself as Captain Nash, and Bond thinks, hey, he's a little funny looking. He's kind of, well, he's got kind of weird eyes. And, and then Nash does the old man thing, and then... And then, so as we, the reader, because we can't see, we don't know whether this is Red Grant or actually this guy, Captain Nash. But then as Bond continues to clock things that annoy him about this guy, a strange Irish brogue, and then the blonde hair, and the we start to realize as we're reading, oh, it's, it's Red Grant in disguise. So it just goes to show you, like, that's what happens in a book. But in the movie, they've decided, okay, we're going to turn Red Grant into a bigger threat, we're going to expand this whole idea of the passwords and then how, how it's passed back and forth and then how Grant's going to intercept it and get the password. Uh, and, it, and it just, um, I don't know whether it complicates it, whether it adds complexity to it. It certainly adds suspense, but it also makes you think that um, you're so far ahead of Bond and you're really kind of wondering whether he's, I mean, it, whether he knows this is Grant or not. Like he's either really stupid or he's just really playing the long game with this guy. Right, because he, he, either he, either we're way – it's one thing to, for us to be ahead of the character. It's another thing for us to be that far ahead of the character when he should not be that far behind. That's like a, that's a fine line you're, you're, you're walking as a writer, I think, where you got to decide. Like, I don't want the audience uh, – the audience satisfaction with being ahead of the character 
and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm with him. He's going to catch up at some point. We're going to have the satisfying moment and frustration with the character for being so far behind you is uh, you got to walk that line. And I don't think they're walking the line very well here. And I think it's a bit of a flaw in the adaptation. I think you're right, Mitch. I think it's a great choice to have Red Grant be more of a threat throughout the film. It works much better in the medium of, of movies. But I think they kind of missed miscalculated a few things. Things don't quite add up. Like for, I don't know why do they even have the moment where Bond notices Red Grant? I mean, that, just eradicate that moment where he like gives him the up and down, you know, clocks him and sizes him up. And I'm a lot better with everything. But that moment, I'm like, that blonde hair, buddy, you better have noticed that. You're a spy. I, I never. You should know that. I never thought he noticed him in that scene that we talked about he, last week. I think he just kind of sees that there's a guy standing there who's probably got who's looking out at the train, and I don't, I don't know. I, he definitely looks at him and. He so he well he looks at him. I'll say that I think he kind of gives him almost a once over. Okay, but even if he just looks at him, that blonde hair is going to stick out to you, man. <laughs> like I don't know, a, a big guy, blonde hair. Then a murder happens shortly after. Then you know it's just like come on, this <laughs> there's mathematics to this. It's detective work. You're supposed to be a detective somewhat. Anyway, I don't know. It's fine. I mean, this is us nitpicking because we're a show about nitpickery, but. uh I don't know. I get a little disappointed in him. And in this case, it costs a guy his life. In this case, it costs one of his colleagues. Uh, he, get, he gets murdered in 15 seconds in a bathroom, apparently, something like that. But um, I don't know. Well, I, I, I agree. I think there's a case to be made that this is a, a Bond being a terrible spy and only saving his ass with the, you know, a briefcase, right? That ultimately, mm -hmm. that's what saves his life. But I would also say, I think the even worse spy that we see in this sequence is is the actual Nash who shows up, who, you know, gives does the little password exchange, and then right away it's like, okay, let, I'll you you go behind me as we walk into this bathroom, and you put <laughs> as you're looking around, as you're glancing around to see if anybody's looking and putting on your murder gloves. <laughs> and that guy, gloves. he kills that guy in about. In about three seconds. So it's, fast. Not only has, you know, kills him so quickly that he's also able to rifle through him and take his spy business card, right? Because yeah. right away when he meets Bond, he gives him, oh, oh, here's my business card. When do, since when do spies exchange business cards? I don't know. And Bond <laughs> even looks at it like, why the hell are you giving, why the hell is, does he have a business card? And in the book, it's it's an engraved business card. So, so somehow Bond takes this card from Nash, and he looks at it, and he, and he thinks to himself, funny, it's an engraved card. Now, I don't know what that means, and Fleming doesn't expand upon it, but uh, it's one of this long list of things uh, that, that really tip Bond off. The, also another is the fact that um, uh, Red Grant is wearing his tie in a full Windsor knot. And apparently, James <laughs> Bond believes that a full Windsor is no, you, you know, nothing beyond a half Windsor is what I assume because he's like that's it's foppish or it's, uh, you know, it's 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 overly showy. Uh, he also smokes he also smokes American cigarettes, and Bond hates Virginia tobacco. So so like Red and then he says old man all the time. So Red Grant is just just naggingly doing these one thing after another after another that that's just making James Bond's skin crawl. That that's all awesome. That's some of the most Bond stuff I've ever heard. But my my thought when he hands him the business card was: Am I meant to assume that that was like the guy he murdered was the real Nash, and he took this mm -hmm. business card off that? Because I also liked the idea that just 
before he would go on this mission, you know, Robert Shaw's character, this, this um, deranged psychopath, as they tell us, would print up these fake business cards to use to impersonate <laughs> and just have some, you know, got to have, okay, I got my, got my murder in Garrett. I got my business cards. Like I'm good to, I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah. Within the reality of the movie, it would be, it would probably say, you know, Bob Nash universal exports or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Cause he took it off the other guy. But yeah, that's what's so weird in the, in the book. It's like the engraved business card. It's like, Okay. Well, this guy definitely did should not have spent the money on an engraved business card, <laughs> considering how terrible a spy he turned out to be. Yeah. I, I can't help but to visualize an American psycho type scene now where there's double O's sitting around a table comparing, uh, <laughs> comparing, comparing business, business cards. cards. <laughs> like Bond, Bond has the watermark in a big <laughs> paper. Uh, but I, I do I like that that whole little sequence when we just you know we can't hear any of the dialogue and we just get the sounds of the train station. I, mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool, and you know, part, part of I guess I didn't need to hear that whole exchange again for like the fourth or fifth time. But true, because the my other problem is I think their little password exchange is thoroughly ridiculous. <laughs> right? Okay, it starts with somebody walking up to you and saying, "Do you have a match?" In an era where that could be. Everyone smokes, right? So that could right. be any man, woman, or child on the face of the planet who could happen to walk up to you and ask for a match. Right. And you you respond, no, I, well, I use a lighter. And their their response is better still, right? Better mm-hmm. still. So basically, the, the, fa- the security of the British Empire hinges upon <laughs> the two words, better still. Yep. And you're like, okay, they said better still. We're good to go. All right. On we go. I, like, I want to know if someone said even better, if they would be like, right. close enough. Close, close enough. enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's, let's, here's let's, the briefcase. Here's the nuclear codes. <laughs> Come on, let's go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, it's a little it's a little much to hinge on, <laughs> on that just that exchange. It should oh, be boy. it should be something absurd, right? Not something as mundane as lighting a cigarette. It should be someone should walk up and just say the you know the goslings are in bloom this year, something that makes absolutely no sense. And then you know that that's the person it could could not possibly be anyone else, and you just you know pretend like it's a normal conversation, even though it's ridiculous. But can I borrow a match? Is not the is like okay, this could be anybody kind of lead in. You're right, it's, uh, and we can blame that on Fleming because that is the com- that's the exchange in the book. So I don't know whether that's just the kind of oh, stuff wow. that they did back when he was in the service, and it was that innocuous and easy to you know I don't know, but well, Probably this. It's clearly why the British Empire crumbled. <laughs> That's what, I was just going to say, we would have won World like War II like two years earlier. <laughs> Don't smoke, kids. That's They're the like, message. I, how did the Nazis keep figuring out our passcodes? <laughs> yeah, they go into great detail about how that passcode came about because uh, every year, Smirsh, because there's no specter in the book, every year Smirsh picks somebody that they know is a British spy nab them and then sweats the codes out of them and they're good for the whole they're good for a year (laughs) (laughs) they don't change it until the next year yeah that's what they that's in the book yeah i have to change my apple (laughs) passcode like four times a year on the world 
So even though you know this guy just disappeared and and maybe got taken off the board, you're right. like, well, we're not gonna, not changing. Let's anything. not bother. Let's not bother changing it. Let's, we got to ride this one out till next year. Let's hope a death that spurs change. Let's 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 hope at least at that point. Oh, security breach. You know, you get that message from your bank or whatever. Probably behind to change your passcode now. Um, we had some suspicious activity. And maybe maybe when they changed it, they would just still just change like a word. You know, instead right. of. You just, instead of asking for a match, you ask for a lighter, and you're like, "No, I use matches." Right. Switch <laughs> it from lighter to yeah, change the lighter still, until they're wet. Yeah, <laughs> until they get wet. Even better. Yeah, close he, enough. He he um kills this guy. This poor, by the way, who's played by the um I guess he's the the production manager. They were they were short on people, so they hired the production. They said the production manager can play this British spy Nash. Uh, who 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 thought it was ridiculous uh, on the day? He said, "We're going to exchange these things, and then I'm going to say, let 'Let's go have a pee.' Like, why are we why are we going to the bathroom?" But they didn't listen to him. He kills him so quickly. It's it's like Zucker Abrams speed. <laughs> it's like something like Frank Drebin would be like, "Hey, come on!" It's like uh, becoming Enrico Palazzo or something at Naked Gun. Like walk into the room and then walk out immediately as the other guy. It's almost what in a it's full like. in a full wardrobe change, like with a mustache and a, yeah, everything. Uh, it's close. It's too close to that. You almost want. I, I'm trying to remember. Is there a cut though? They there is go a cut. to the WC. They cut to Bond looking for right. him, and then they cut to Grant coming out. So with the cut, you can cut I know. some slack, yeah, but a little bit. It, it does almost seem in my memory. It feels like one take, like where like, he walks in and then just walks right out. Well, it, it just still feels too fast. If it takes that long, then that's also on Bond because Bond, Bond, what like loiters before he goes out on the platform oh, to meet this guy. Cl- clearly, should you be out there right away? Yeah, Red Grant beats him to the guy, and Bond's just kind yeah. of still screwing around in the train, looking out the windows, which seems, you know, strike two. Grant would know there's more urgency to it than Bond would. Bond doesn't well, know somebody knows the code, true, or that there's anybody on the train. So I guess it makes sense he. Grant knows I got to get off the train right away. He has such confidence in the code, which he knows is uncrackable. <laughs> he knows he can loiter, have a little breakfast martini before he wanders out to make the exchange. Don't worry. The code's bulletproof. Nothing can go wrong. Does that hat fit? No, <laughs> no it, it does not. I don't think it does. I was just like, this That's is a question for Andy Parks. Definitely Andy, does, does that hat fit? fit? No, it doesn't fit. <laughs> the um, that's a good detail, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good yeah. detail. He's dumb enough to put the hat on, and when it doesn't fit, it's yeah, kind of like maybe you should have dropped it in the trash, buddy, because maybe Bond will clock that. Maybe not your wins or not, but maybe he'll clock your hat. Yeah, I don't know. It's... Maybe the hat is on the business card, so he needs the hat to match. <laughs> it's his All cover. He's a haberdasher. Yeah, there's a little there's a little quote at the bottom of the man with the hat. The man that always has a hat. Oh, I better put this on. Nash is known for his Windsor knots and his fancy hats. The exchange with um Nash and Bond or Grant and Bond was supposed to have been the first time we hear him speak, but Peter Hunt had the idea in editing that they could they could stave it off one more one more beat because since he has not said a word in the entire film it's kind of cool that you actually not only get a, a repeat of the sounds being obscured from the previous moment when Grant talked to the guy, but now you don't get to hear Grant's voice yet again. And so it's like a one, two. And so we finally hear him say Captain Nash only when they get on board the train. So it was, an, it was a, that was a 
post-production choice. They actually did did film them saying the lines and they recorded it. But well, that is a cool idea. Yeah, I don't think I'd even realized that we hadn't heard him speak until that point. Yeah, and apparently he was very worried about like what's he going to do for a voice. And he talked. He and Peter Hunt apparently were really good friends because they would often have Robert Shaw come in and uh, read with other actors when they would do screen tests. And so they were they were pretty good friends. And Shaw was concerned about what his voice should sound like when he's had such a buildup. What accent should he use? Because in the book he's Irish, and Bond kind of clocks this weird Irish accent. It's not totally a brogue. One more thing that goes on his list of things aren't right with this guy, but. Um, this very kind of cheerio old chap mm-hmm. accent that Shaw uses, I think is really good. I I love it. I mean, Robert Shaw was actually British, right? He he was British. Robert he was Shaw. Irish. I think he was Irish. He was, he was Irish. Was Irish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I I I love any time. Like I love you know back during the wire when that there was that bit when Dominic Monaghan did this really terrible British accent where he's pretending to breathe. <laughs> right. I love when you have someone who, you know, who actually is that, of that nationality pretending to do a bad version of it. So I, 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 I love how Shaw is in that whole scene. Like I love how overly relaxed he's acting, you know, he's all lean when they're on, once they're on the train, he's all leaned back and yeah. he's, he's, he's so flippant. Like, you know, like what's the plan old man. And, Oh, can we stop and get something to eat? You know, mm. he calls him sir. Even he defers to him, sir. Could we? Could we get something to eat? Which I think is pretty interesting. You know, trying to keep Bond off guard. Yes, I love all, and I love the yeah, the accent. I think is a is a good part of it. Um, I, yeah, I, I I mean I I love him and everything. You know, the taking a Pelham one two three is Shakespearean to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I thoroughly like I said I. I think it's always a red flag in those kind of scenes when it's like, oh, this guy is like overly relaxed. Why the why the hell is this guy so relaxed? Which because Bond clearly has all kind of concerns in this scene of, you know, what, I mean, he just points out that he's fit. Like, should the fact that he's fit really be a, one of the red flags here? It's like because he's fit, he's definitely an assassin. Yeah, that, that is a weird thing to note, considering Connery himself is pretty fit, too. It seems to be, trying to think, I, everyone we see is pretty fit from, <laughs> the, as far as the, you know, the organization. Yeah, I don't so know. So if this is it the is long, he's sizing him up. He's trying to decide whether he could take him. And, I mean, that seems to me why he, why he kind of says that, because if, John, you're right, and he saw him way earlier and knows the whole time that he's the opposition... Uh, I guess he's, I guess he's trying to, trying to size him up. So he could. I definitely want to think now uh, that Bond is aware. He does seem to be. He's definitely suspicious. Mm-hmm. So now I'm thinking, okay, Bond, finally, finally, something you're noticing something. It's great. Um, I mean, it's a little too late for poor Nash, the real Nash. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it, it makes me feel better. I'm like, okay, now he's now he's on to something. But now we're we're converging, right? Like once he meets Red Grant, what we know and what he knows is we're starting to come together for the first time. We're not ahead of him, and we're ahead of him a little bit because he's not 100 percent sure. Well, we still but and we still we're, know we're starting to spectrum. merge onto the same track. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's he's definitely suspicious, but does he know? I mean, he you know, like right away he's going to do the obvious ploy of like. 
well, you guys go on to dinner. I'm going to stay here for a minute just so I can rummage through your, your briefcase, which seems to find really nothing that would alert his suspicions more, right? Like sort of what you would expect to find. But, um, but I would say, I mean, yeah, he's suspicious enough to do that. I mean, right. So that's something. And he doesn't care about her very much. No. Obviously right. at this point, yeah, because think- he's like, you go with this guy. Uh, Throw her maybe I'll see you. Maybe yeah. I'll see you later. Well, yeah. you know, not to jump ahead in our minutes, but he doesn't care when he notices that Grant is poisoning her drink. Right. 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 Like That's he, true. Yeah. He notices. He notices because he asked him later, like, "What was that?" But clearly, didn't try to stop him. Yeah. Yeah. And, had, and had no idea what it was, so he had no idea if she's about to drop dead. Another thing that occurred to me as I was going back and rereading this section of the book is there's no explosive briefcase in the book. It does have a couple of gadgets, but it's, but, but no explosion. And interestingly enough in the book, the decoding device is booby trapped. And actually red grant says, that's going to be great when your guys get a hold of it and they, they open it up and they try to use it and it, and it blows up in their faces. Uh, which is a little interesting. Like, again, I'm not sure how, how much water that holds because you would think that the first thing Bond would have done when he got the decoding vice was to check it and make sure that it was what he said it was. Uh, but then there's also another explosion that's alluded to. Apparently after Karim Bey's son finds out that his dad was killed, they blow up the Russian consulate. Uh, the, the, the You know the Dang. periscope where they look through and everything? They... They, the, so the explosion of the Russian consulate, which kind of happens in the in the heist scene and doesn't happen in the book, there is no heist scene, uh, is a is a explosive act of revenge by the Karim Bay team against the Russians. So just you know, I just think it's interesting how there are explosions in this, not the same explosions, but it's like the screenwriters kind of clock this idea of uh, explosive devices and then they transpose them onto other aspects of the story. Well, the, it's just a shame they had to waste that sweet periscope set up. Yeah, that, that's true. pretty awesome. So you're not going to be able to set that up again. Yeah, it seems a little reactionary. I understand that they think <laughs> it that does it. Yeah, a little bit, maybe. <laughs> but but you kind of have a good thing going here with this per- unnoticed periscope, and they uh, we follow each other around, but we don't bother each other. Kind of uh, the Cold War you have going on, blowing up the consulate. What's the what did the Russians do? I mean. <laughs> You're yeah, talking right. about the Russians here. Uh, they get they're they're more powerful than you. I imagine all of Karen B.A.'s sons probably are no longer with us. Right, really after that, blew up the blew up the rug market. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah anything else? I just as we, we've kind of made we kinda, our way. We kind of made our way to the end, didn't we? We did. Yeah. Did, we did we skip, skip over, over anything? anything? Not really. Not really. Because because so much so much of it was a second montage. montage. You want to go back and yeah, talk yeah, about that? I think we, we talked, talked about, about the second montage. montage. <laughs> while we were about one during the day, one during the night. We skipped the night one. Yeah. Well, it's so so. Grant in the book is Irish. You said right? Am I? Yeah. Am I supposed to? I mean, I don't get any hint of Irish accent from him in any scene. No. Do you? I, I wasn't clear like what, what his nationality was supposed to be. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that stuff that is left to the imagination of the viewer that gets explained in the book, but is kind of unnecessary to the story. I mean, we know he's a killer, and we know now he's pretending to be somebody he's not. I don't think you need that much more. And his, I mean, you know, when he switches kind of to his 
regular accent. I still can't pin like what that accent is. Yeah, he just sounds a little rougher. He just kind of takes the old chap stuff off of it and just keeps. But he still sounds still sounds pretty English to me. Um, and do, like the one little bit um, I do love is that last look Shaw gives when he's closing the door to the to the train compartment when he's leaving with with um, the uh, what's her name with Tanya Tanya and just that last you know where the facade drops a little bit and the last little cold look back mm-hmm. into the is is great and he knows what Bond's going to do and he knows that he's not going to find anything. That's not, that would tip him off. So he's really enjoying the game that he's playing. It seems like, right? He's got the perfect plan. It's going to go smoothly, except for that damn exploding briefcase. Yeah, gets if him every time. Known about the exploding, or if it it's his greed that's his downfall ultimately, right? Because he wants those. He's like, oh, you got some gold? Sure, I'll take the gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He should have stuck to his, you know, simple murderous principles. <laughs> <laughs> The gloves should have been enough. For right. So he's Spectre. got his murder gloves. I could get so many murder gloves with this. <laughs> I think that clearly the you know, the chess player who designed this whole plan did not account for human greed. No, no. that's often what happens. <laughs> well, Jason, do you have other than Conan, anything else coming up that uh, you want to. Yeah. I, could, I was going to loop. I was going to loop this back to, um, to bond to this movie in some way in these scenes and that, you know, what we start in Turkey, right. And we go into former Yugoslavia by the end. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, a lot of the work I've done over the course of my career has been with um, artists from the, that, that part of the world. So Mahmoud Azrar, who's doing Conan is, is Turkish. Um, I've done a lot of work with Serbian and Croatian artists. Um, Esad Ribic, who you know did a lot of my Thor run, is Croatian. Make sure I don't get that backwards. Esad's Croatian. Rm Gera, who I did scalped and the goddamned with, is is, is Serbian. So um, for whatever reason, I've even though I've never been to that part of the world, worked with a lot of amazing artists um, from that area. Uh, but yeah, I got got. King Conan starts in December. I've been doing um, Avengers for about the, the last few years. And uh, coming up in November, we hit issue 50 of my run, which is also issue number 750 of, you know, when you wow. cram together all the different versions of Avengers. Um, that's And that's a huge, like, 80-page issue. And then spinning out of that, I'm doing a new Avengers book called Avengers Forever that will start also in December. Um, and what else? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of all I can talk about right now. I did, I, did I hear that some, that the Thor work that you did is maybe finding its way into the next Marvel movie or something like that? Yeah. Thor love and thunder, which comes out, I think in May of next year, the next Thor movie by Taika Waititi yeah. is based based in large part on on some of my Thor stuff. So um, the the Christian Bale's character, Gore the God Butcher, is a character I created that was the villain of kind of the first big chunk of my Thor run. And then Natalie Portman's coming back as Jane Foster. And, and you know, I did a big story where Jane Foster becomes Thor, picks up the hammer. Right. Um, so, yeah, Taika's, Taika's weaving together a lot of that stuff. 
um, which is which is really really exciting. You know, getting to see Christian Bale screaming lines that I wrote, I think, will be a particular thrill. Pretty nice. Yes. That's really exciting. That is great. I will tell you, Jason, that my son and I were reading that Thor run on our um, Marvel Unlimited. Um, and didn't finish it because I realized it wasn't really good for my son to be reading. There was a <laughs> couple of spots where I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open-minded, but I, I can't remember what it was, but I got to a point where I was like, maybe my little kid shouldn't be reading this one, but, uh, we well, were enjoying it anyway. Whatever age it's okay to read about, you know, the slaughter of, of right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Each, I can't each remember. Parent, each parent has to make that decision for themselves. I can't read the, I can't remember anything specific, but there was a point where I thought, you know, maybe this was a three years ago. Maybe I don't remember when it came out, but so he was only six or something. So it's like, maybe not now, but we got to pick that back up again. Cause it was very cool. I was enjoying it a lot. Is, is there still any kind of a comics code that exists of what you can and can't do in a book? No, no. Yeah. I mean the, yeah, I mean the actual comics code, you know, from the old days doesn't exist anymore. They're, I mean, each company kind of has their own sort of ratings, mm-hmm. but there's no kind of standardized version of that. So, yeah, I mean, there's still times Marvel will say, no, you you know, you can't have Conan cut off three people's heads on this page or we need to cover up this nudity a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's no standardized version. And then when I'm when I'm, you know, if I'm doing a creator on book. Um, with a company like image. I mean, there's no restrictions right. really whatsoever. It's kind of whatever, whatever you want to put in there. The image doesn't really know what the book is until you send it to them and they print it. Right. Right. I just, cause I remember as a, as a kid, when the black and white magazines came out, it was a whole other ball game from the, you know, the difference between Conan in the comic and Conan in the black and white magazine was pretty dramatically different. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Those Savage Sword of Conan magazines. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, they weren't beholden to the to the comics code. Right. And, and all the black aspect. and white horror comics that that Marvel did were just great. The, the Tales of the Zombie thing. And they were really good. Really crazy. Sure. Yeah. All those Warren magazines. And well, yeah. And then those two and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Blazing Combat. Love Blazing Combat. Yeah. I love all that stuff. I'm a giant nerd, so my house is filled with, you know, lots and lots of nerd stuff. Lots of hammers, lots of spinner racks of comic books. I was just going to say, for the listener out there, there's a spinner rack right behind him. Pretty awesome. This is, yeah, this is, this is my work desk. So this is like my reference spinner rack, but downstairs I've also got a spinner rack literally covered with, you know, the, the actual copies i bought off the drugstore spinner rack when i was 10 years old when my mom would take me to the drugstore and i'd grab an issue of new teen titans or or whatever um so i've still got all those i like to just take them and touch them and flip through them yeah um i love whenever i'm you know i think one of the reasons i i i like bond i've always again i've never been a huge bond fan but kind of always been interested in it is the same reason i'm interested in you know, Tarzan movies or Godzilla movies as I'm, I like looking at how the characters that have been around for that long and have been, you know, get reinterpreted to kind of fit the time. So I'm always Mm -hmm. interested in that in part because that's what I do for a living, right? Like that's what, when you're writing Thor, that's what you have to do. Um, So I, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of fascinated by all that stuff in general, but as a part of that, you know, when I am, when I take on Thor or take on whatever, I like to go back and not just 
get a modern trade paperback or read comics on my iPad, but I like to go buy copies of the books that were out at that time, right? So there's something, even if I know Jack Kirby himself never probably never held this particular copy, knowing that it's from the era when Kirby was was writing drawing this, I like holding that and smelling it and and you know, maybe getting some of the good mojo off of it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. It's great talking to you as always. It's been, we haven't, we haven't spoken in two years. It's really, it's so good to see you. I know. I feel like I haven't spoken to anybody in two years. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. This was fun. Thanks for, thanks for having me on guys. And thank everybody out there for listening to us again this week. You can find us over at Twitter on at uh, 007 by seven podcast. And of course, come over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. We'll see you next week. Bye everybody.